We'll read Romans 8, verses 31 through 34. Hear now the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God given for our prophet. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the great and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, for that good news that sinners doomed to destruction, full of sins that make us liable to accusations, those worthy to be condemned by our sins and unrighteousness from our first father Adam to our own voluntary choices. That in all of these ways, O oh God, and even in our sinful disposition, our natural corruption, in all these ways, we are liable to accusation and to condemnation. And yet, this glorious gospel that you have freely chosen a people in Christ Jesus of your own will before the foundations of the world were laid. You who justified us as we in Christ receive his righteousness and he upon the cross died for our sins, we may have no condemnation and no accusers before you. As we consider these glorious truths, cause our hearts to rejoice Build our hope and our faith. Make our love to be inflamed for you and for your people and ways. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last Sabbath we considered verses 31 and 32. God for us, who against us? We saw that God was our shield and is our shield an exceeding great reward. No weapon formed against the people of God shall prosper. The Lord is on our side. We shall not fear what man can do to us. We saw the, be, the beholding of God's abundant grace that he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all. That God, by his grace, even sent his son to redeem us from death. And if he did the greater, he will also do the lesser. And so we saw that God is not stingy in our salvation. The father is not merely a, an observer of our salvation, but that he gave his son and delivered him up for us and did not spare his only beloved son so that he might have his enemies for his friends. Now let's consider verses 33 and 34. Verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Here first, this word, 
who shall lay anything to the charge. This word means to call in or to summon someone as a legal technical term, to accuse, to bring charges against, to institute proceedings against someone. That's the idea. The court is set up. The charges are heard. Who's going to do that, he asks. Who shall lay anything to the charge? Please open to Acts chapter 19, page 1120 of your pew Bibles for this verb, laying to the charge. The Apostle Paul had his fair share of charges laid to his account. Let's read of some of these. Verses 37 through 39. For ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Wherefore, if Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man, the law is open, and there are deputies. Let them implead one another. But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. Here, notice, we have laws, he says. Now, this is a riot at Ephesus. And all the silversmiths got together and made a riot. Why? Because their business dried up. People stopped buying their idols. Why? Because Paul preached the gospel. So they want to kill him. They want him dead. They want his religion pushed away so that they may profit in this life. And this wise heathen reminds them, you don't have any evidence of any wrongdoing, do you? Ye have brought hither these men which are neither robbers of churches. Now that is, under biblical law, a capital offense. And to the heathens that would be considered a capital offense. You went into our temples, you stole our images, you're worthy of death. So he says, you have nothing like that to accuse them of. And then he says, they don't even blaspheme your goddess. You ever hear Paul rail against Diana of the Ephesians? You never heard it. He was wise. He spoke against her without speaking against her. He spoke against those that are made with hands as not gods. That's what he said. Them that are made with hands are not God. Well, you can make the application, but he never spoke against Diana. He never said death to Diana of the Ephesians, for example. He did not blaspheme her. Not because he couldn't, but because he wanted to gain them over without getting himself arrested and killed, as in this case. But notice, he says, if you have some matter against this man, the law is open, we have a court system, and there are deputies, judges, who will take your case and hear your evidence. Let them implead one another. Let them accuse. Let them lay things to each other's charges. It's the same verb as in Romans 8.33. Turn over to chapter 23, the same book of Acts. Paul had many things laid to his charge. Page 11.26, Acts 23, verses 26 through 30. Listen to Claudius Lysias. Claudius Lysias, unto the most excellent governor Felix, Felix sendeth greeting. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. 
That's a lie, by the way, but let's pass on. And when I would have known the cause wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth unto their counsel. Notice, they accused him. What is the cause? Let's hear you implead. Let's hear you lay something to his charge. Whom I perceive to be accused, impleaded, charges laid to him, accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. Notice there, that's the same verb. Accusation, laid to his charge, impleading. They would come with these accusations, and you can also read this in chapter 26, verses 2 and 7 concerning the apostle and the accusations laid against him. Here's the court. The law is open. Jesus has been set as the judge of all men. Is there someone out there, someone anywhere, who can come along and lay accusations at law in God's court? Let's turn back to Romans 8. So that's the idea of laying a charge, making an accusation, showing a wrongdoing, bringing forth evidence. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Election here is used as a noun, but it's an adjective, those chosen ones. It's a description of these people. Who's going to bring proceedings against the elect of God? God chose them. And notice here, the apostle is transitioning. He's going to deal with the doctrine of election, especially in chapters 9 through 11. And he's been dealing with the doctrine of justification from chapter 3, verses 21 till now. So now he's transitioning election and justification. Who shall lay anything to the charge? That's justification or condemnation if the accusation sticks and here the doctrine of election please open to Isaiah chapter 50 concerning election we saw foreknowledge and predestination earlier in chapter 8 now he broaches this topic of election and we looked at this recently concerning Our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 5, Isaiah 50. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that pluck off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore I shall not be confounded, Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. Who is this? Who gave his back to the smiters? Who gave his face to have his beard hairs plucked off? Who was spit upon and shamed? This is Jesus Christ. And what is he called? He is called the elect of God, his chosen servant in whom God delighteth. 
But here, notice, no one's going to condemn him, are they? No one's going to come near as an adversary and condemn or shame him. He invites them. Let us stand together. Come near. Let's hear your case. Let's hear my case. And who will God justify? Me, he says. He is near that justifieth me. Who's going to condemn me? No one. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, Christ has no condemnation. Christ cannot be condemned. God justified his son. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as... He hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Notice here. God chose us in Christ. Christ cannot be condemned. Christ was justified by God, inviting his adversaries to bring some accusation against him, and they could not. And because we are God's elect, none can bring an accusation against us. No one can bring proceedings against Christ. Therefore, no one can bring proceedings against his body. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, page 1195. And by the way, God chose us so that we should be holy, not because we were. 2 Thessalonians Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, please, page 1201. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here, notice, the apostle had very difficult times. The one thing that kept him going was not his universal love for all mankind. No. The reason why he was willing to go to prison and to suffer in bonds as an evildoer, though he did nothing wrong, 
was for the sake of those chosen by God so that they might obtain salvation, that they might be freed from the bonds of sin and death. And that salvation is in Christ Jesus. And guess what comes with it? Eternal glory. Salvation now, eternal life as a present possession and as a future possession in eternal glory. That's why Paul endured all things. That's why he put up with so much, so that the elect might receive salvation. Notice here, God choosing a people unto salvation, even ordaining the word of God and its ministers for the salvation of his elect. That's why he's done it. He chose them from the beginning. He appointed for them the means. He put them together, united them with Christ Jesus, justified his son, and justified them when he was justified. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. God that justifieth, or literally God the justifying one. God is the active agent in our justification. So here's the question. Will God send someone to lay accusation against his people when he himself has already declared the verdict? That's what justification is. It's where God the judge considers the evidence and makes a determination according to the law. What's the determination he made? Justified. It is God that justifieth. Do you think that now the elect of God, since God has justified them, that somehow they can have an accusation laid against them that will stick? Doesn't make any sense. God, the judge of all men, he already issued the verdict. What's he going to say? Well, I changed my mind. Can he do that? Can God change his mind? Can he change the thing that he has decreed? He cannot. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Not only did God choose them in eternity past, he declared them righteous in his son. William Plummer comments, <coughs> It is he who has been sinned against, whose law has been infracted, whose majesty has been insulted, if he is reconciled so as to justify, his elect need not fear rejection. And that's what the apostle is saying. Should you fear God rejecting you? Of course not. If you have been justified by God and you're one of his elect, he's not going to cast you off. I note then this doctrine. Election and justification are infallibly connected. Election and justification are infallibly connected. Sometimes we consider them in separate thoughts. The doctrine of election, the doctrine of justification. But do you see how the apostle joins them together here? Who can bring an accusation that might cause a person to be condemned? Against whom? The justified? Does, is that how he frames it? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's justified ones? No, he doesn't. God's elect. God's chosen. Why? Because election infallibly brings with it justification. There's no unlinking these. They go together. And we saw this in the golden chain, of course. 
But here it comes out again. The elect of God cannot have proceedings instituted against them. It's not possible. God is the justifying one. Who's going to come along and undo that? God's elect are said to be justified by God himself. This means that only and all of the elect are justified by God. God chose them from the beginning unto salvation. They were called by the preaching of the gospel to the obtaining of eternal glory. These are the same ones that he said were foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. No one can lay a charge to these. No one can institute proceedings as they did against the Apostle Paul. They cannot institute some kangaroo court that will condemn them. It's not going to happen. But those not chosen by God, nothing but accusations can be laid to their charge. That's it. One pile and mountain of guilt. No Christ, nothing but judgment. With Christ, no judgment whatsoever. Let us, in exhortation, take consolation in these glorious truths. No matter what adversities, trials, tribulations, perils, persecutions, swords, sorrows, losses, God has demonstrated his love toward us in choosing us, in calling us, in justifying us, and in glorifying us. Another exhortation. Let us learn a scripture manner of reasoning. Let us learn a scripture manner of reasoning. Well, how is that? Well, it's to link up what God has joined together. It's to recognize I should see this doctrine of election in the light of this doctrine of justification. And I should see this work of God in justification in the light of what he has done in choosing me in election. The two are to be linked up with each other. And you may also go a step further. You may talk about the persons of the Godhead and how that interplays with the doctrine of election. God the Father chose us, how? In Christ Jesus, unto sanctification of the Spirit, we saw. There's a Trinitarian element. The doctrine of the Trinity informs our doctrine of election as it does our doctrine of salvation. Let us see the links that God draws in his word, and even those he does not explicitly draw, which we may, by good and necessary consequence, see the links to each other. Let us learn a scripture manner of reasoning. And this is the duty of every single Christian. As a theologian, one who studies God, trace out these glorious truths of God. How are these parts connected with the other parts of this glorious truth in the God-breathed scriptures? Another doctrine. Our salvation is the work of God alone. Who chose us? God. Who justifies us? God. Who gets all the credit? God. Who does all the work? God. Peter Martyr notes the following. These things are not spoken of them which work, neither are referred unto merits, nor ascribed unto our worthiness. And you should read some of the church fathers and Arminians who will say that God chose us. Why? Well, because we're worthy. You know, 
When you choose friends, you make a wise choice. You choose a good person, right? So God's the wisest, so he's going to choose the best. That's what Chrysostom says. Is that what Paul says? No. God is the one who chose us. God is the one who justified us. There's no reference made to merits, nothing ascribed to our worthiness. Martyr goes on, For here is mention made only of the elect, and unto them belong these things, inasmuch as they are elected of God, and for that they are freely justified. For otherwise we all have in ourselves many things which may be very good right both be accused and condemned. Are there things that we could be accused of? Yes. Are there things we could be condemned for? Yes. Then why does he say this? Because it's all of his grace, not of our works. In exhortation, then, let us boast in God's work alone. He that glorieth, the apostle says, let him glory in the Lord. And the word glory means to boast to brag, to speak highly with an open mouth, as we'll see in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Her horn is exalted. She lifts up and boasts in what? In God's salvation. So let us boast in the Lord. All that we have is a gift from God. Let us be humbled. Let us be grateful. Let us be about our Father's business day and night, talking of his power, thankful for his gracious choice. Please turn to Romans 8 again. And we'll look at verse 34. Verse 33 again, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Now verse 34, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who is he that condemneth? Please, Paul says, name one. The Father has judgment. Who did he commit all judgment to? To his Son. And what has the Son done? Well, he died. He died upon the cross. Who is he? Bring him forward. Let him show the sentence of condemnation after the accusations are made. Verse 33, there must be a sentence of condemnation. Who's going to render it? Now, we saw this in our study of justification. Do you remember? Both in the Old and New Testament, what does the word justify mean? Well, it's for a judge in a courtroom to see evidence, to hear the case pleaded, and then to render a decision, this one is righteous and this one is wicked. To render the decision that says this one is righteous is to justify, and to render the decision that says this one is wicked is to condemn. Do you see how this is all legal? It's all in the courtroom. It all has to do with guilt. It all has to do with pleading and saying here's the evidence. God justifies the elect. Is there some other judge out there? Is there some other court out there? And this is a what we call rhetorical question. Who is he that condemneth? Nobody condemns. Nobody can. Nobody will. Why? It is Christ that died. He was condemned already. 
He died to the seal, the removal of our condemnation. Who's going to condemn us then? Christ died, Diodati said, for them and in their name and stead, whereby they are absolved. The guilt, in other words, of God's people was laid upon him. Christ took the condemnation of the elect upon himself, but not just died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Because if Jesus died and did not rise again, do you know what that means for us? No good. No salvation, no forgiveness, no eternal life. Sure, he died, but that's it. He covered over that. You're left on your own. There's no representative for you in heaven. There's no everlasting life for you. There's no resurrection of the body. You're doomed. You are of all men most miserable. Here you are trying to serve God, and it's all a waste of time if Jesus didn't rise again, Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15. So when we think of Christ dying in our stead and for us in our name, our absolution from all condemnation through him, we must then think rather, he says, that he is raised from the dead. To think merely of Christ as dying is to miss the point. It's only to start the first phase, not to move on to the glorious triumph over sin and death and hell. He was condemned in our behalf and raised for our justification so that God might receive us. The crucified Savior is the first part of the story, not the conclusion. He was not buried in shame and that was it. He was raised again by the power of God. The Savior, victorious over sin, death, hell, the grave. He took away our shame, nailed it to the cross, overcame death, and was received of the Father. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even, he says, at the right hand of God. You may read Psalm 110 at your leisure. God says, sit thou at my right hand until what? All thine enemies are made thy footstool. This is his kingship. Christ, the great priest, offered himself up. Then he ascended up into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning for the benefit of his church. The Father justified us. Will he condemn us? No. The Son died to secure our justification, taking the condemnation upon himself, and then he went into heaven to rule for our benefit. Is he going to condemn us? Who also maketh intercession for us? Now we saw the Spirit of God making intercession for us. Chapter 8, verse 27. But here, our Lord Jesus Christ himself is our advocate. He is our mediator. He is our intercessor. Please open to Hebrews chapter 4 concerning this intercession of Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, page 1209. We'll read verses 14 through 16. Verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. 
For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Turn over to Hebrews 9, verses 24 through 28. Hebrews 9, starting at verse 24. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest offered, or excuse me, entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he, ha he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now... Once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Notice, Christ appears right now in heaven for his people. He's there. He's at God's right hand. And his interceding for us, don't think of it as Aaron interceding for the people, praying again and again. He's done it once for all. And he came after he accomplished that redemption with the wounds and scars, sprinkling his own blood in the heavenly tabernacle. He's gone there and he appears before the face of God. And God says, I accept them. You have done exactly what is required. And now interceding for us, being in God's presence on our behalf. William Tweese comments, he says or asks, of what sort is this intercession? It is not oral, but real. From the mere presentation of his own self who was offered upon the cross. Hence is that which is said in Hebrews 9.24, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Christ appears there as the God-man who was crucified, who died, who was buried, who rose again, ascended into heaven, waiting till all of his enemies are made his footstool. His very presence is his intercession, appearing there before God's face on our behalf for our benefit. I note then this doctrine. Christ's death was designed by God for the same elect that are justified by God. Christ's death was designed by God for the same elect that are justified by God. Do you see the logic of the apostle here? Who can bring proceedings against the, the, the elect of God? Well, no one can. Why? Because God justifies them. Who's he that condemneth? Well, no one, because Jesus Christ died. Well, who did he die for? Here, notice the design of God. Is Jesus Christ going to die for someone, make intercession for them? God the Father chose them. The Holy Ghost sanctified them and applies the redemption of Christ, and then they burn in hell? Is that how this works? That somehow God is schizophrenic? He wants people to be saved. He does all that he can, and oops, it doesn't happen. No. That would mean that the elect of God, justified by God, can 
be condemned. But what does he say? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died once for all to take away the sins of whom? Of the elect, of those justified by God. He rose in his own person for their benefit. He is there at the right hand of God making intercession for us, he says, not for all men. He doesn't present himself for the whole world, Judas Iscariot, Esau, and Pharaoh included. No, for us, he says. Christ's death was designed by God for the same elect that are justified by God. In fact, Jesus, when he was on the earth, stated whom he prayed for. Let's open to John 17, please. Page 1087. Now some people quibble with the phrase, the Lord's Prayer, which being the Lord's just means he taught it to his disciples. And they'll say, this is the Lord's Prayer, which is partially true. This is his own prayer. The words he spoke to God as our Lord. Look there at verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh. Why? That he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Notice. Does Christ have universal dominion? Yes. Thou hast given him power over all flesh. Does he have a purpose to save all flesh? No. That he should. There's the purpose clause. That he should. Why the universal dominion of Christ? With the purpose that he should give eternal life to as many as thou has given him. Oh, but didn't God give him everybody? No. Verse 9. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Here, there. Notice. These ones that God gave him, he gave him universal dominion, and then he gave some out of that universal dominion, some men from the whole world, he gives his life for them, and he prays for them as well. Look down at verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. What did Paul call them? For whom did he endure all things? For the elect's sake who shall believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. The apostles, I have chosen them. The son of perdition, who would have been better not to be born, he's been removed. Now I have these, and they will give the words of eternal life, and others, namely the elect, given to Christ out of the world, they will believe through their words. Does Christ Want everyone to be saved? Did God justify all men? Because if he chose them to salvation, they're justified by God and there's no condemnation. So you're left with this. 
Christ died for all the sins of all men and all will be saved, or Christ died for most of the sins of all men and no one will be saved because they'll still have those sins that get condemned, or Christ died for all the sins of some men and they shall be saved. That's what Jesus teaches. That's what Paul teaches. Christ died for all of the sins of some men, namely those given to him out of the world, called the elect by the Apostle Paul in both Romans and 2 Timothy 2. These that God gave to him, he died and rose again for them. He makes intercession for them now to appear in the presence of God for them. This is a rebuke to the vain notion that Christ died, rose, ascended, or intercedes for men who will have things laid to their charge. He says there's nothing that can be laid to their charge. Well, in these men's scheme, there will be things laid to their charge. Oh, you did not have faith. God chose you to salvation. Christ died for your sins. But there will be things laid to your charge at that last day that you must answer for. And who will condemn them? Jesus will. The Father will. The angels will. The saints will. Everybody's going to condemn them. That's not the point of what Paul's saying, is it? That is not consistent with Romans 8. Because it is vain and foolish. And it is the doctrine of man, not the doctrine of God. In exhortation then, let us see the abundant proof of God's grace to us in Christ. God gives abundant proof to us. This follows on the heels of God saying he didn't spare his son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? Well, here's some of the all things. No accusations can be brought. No judge can be appointed to condemn. God already issued the sentence of justification. Who's going to come along and undo it? No, Christ died for that very purpose that God's elect might see the abundant grace of God, the justice of God satisfied. Not take consolation in some vain notion. Well, God loves me as much as he loved Esau, who went to hell. Is that very consoling to you? God loves you, just like he loved Judas Iscariot, who's burning in flames right now. Is that very consoling to you? No, because it's not taught in the word of God. It's not true. We have consolation because God assures us of his love from all eternity to all eternity. Matthew Poole comments, let conscience carnal reason, law, sin, hell, and devils bring forth all they can. It will not be sufficient to condemnation, and that because of Christ's death and satisfaction. I note then this second doctrine. Christ's death was a satisfaction of God's justice for the elect. Now that is not all that the death of Christ was, but it certainly was that. Christ's death was a satisfaction of God's justice for the elect. In explanation of this, see how the apostle in Acts, or excuse me, in Romans 8, is connecting together the election of God, the accusations that could be brought, 
the sentence of justification already rendered and the lack of condemnation by any judge. How's he doing that? He's connecting it with the death of Christ. Well, how do those fit together? Unless Christ's death was a satisfaction of God's justice such that no accusation and no condemnation can be issued. Christ's death satisfied the justice of God for the elect. An exhortation then. Let us delight in God's plan of salvation. You know what the heathen are left with? The false religionists, the deceivers who sell you coal mines as if they were gold mines. You know what they're left with? Well, either God has to stop being just or God can't be merciful. If you want a merciful God in heathenism and in all the other false doctrines, what do you need? Well, if he's going to be merciful, he has to kind of overlook your sins because there's no full satisfaction. You've got to make some satisfaction. Now, can you? No, because you're a sinner. So God has to bend the rules a little bit to let you in. Allah is most merciful and gracious, they say. Well, how? How can Allah be merciful? Well, he has to stop being just. He has to stop punishing you for your sins. He has to pretend like your evil deeds, your evil thoughts, your evil affections aren't evil. He has to just overlook it. So what is he? He's merciful, but he's not just. Or you could have a God who is absolutely just, and what happens to all men? Well, you all get punished. There's no hope for anyone. Why? Well, because there's no mercy left. It must be justice. Justice must be meted out. What do we have in Christ? God justifieth his elect by the death of Jesus Christ. His justice is satisfied so no one can condemn. In fact, they can't even bring an accusation because he justified them not by ignoring his law, but by honoring his law. Every sin will be punished, either in the Son of God who paid the price or in the sinner in hell. God's going to be just, but he's also merciful. And this is the good news. God satisfied his justice while pouring out his mercy upon his people. No satisfactions by men, no masses or penance, no good works by which you say, well, yeah, it's not exactly what God wants, but good enough to satisfy his justice. That is a God with mercy and no justice. And we do not serve that idol. We serve the true and the living God who will not be merciful at the expense of his justice. And to his elect, he has chosen to be both just and merciful in his son, Jesus Christ. And thus far, the exposition of Romans 8, 33 and 34.